0: Hey everybody, you're listening to the Legacy Church podcast. Legacy Church is a multi-generational church that exists to worship God, become like Jesus, and bring hope to our community. Today, we're sharing a message from our current series. We believe that the Word of God is powerful and has real-life application to our lives today. We hope that this message encourages you. Get connected and learn more about us by visiting our website at lgcy.church.
1: Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, 3. You shall be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 16. So God is holy and he commands us to be holy. That's great. What is holiness? If you look at the dictionary definition, it means apart, uh, separate, or sacred. So I'm going to go over here and be apart from you guys. Separate, that's what it means. That's what the ancient monks used to think when they went in the Middle Ages, they would go in to live in a cave and take a vow of silence and separate themselves from the world. But Jesus kind of detonates that image of holy in the the parable of the prodigal son, where the father, who is supposed to be dignified and aloof, races to to, to embrace the younger son. And he, in those verses, the reason that was such a shocking story at the time is Jesus just leaves their idea of holiness in flaming ruin. So what is holiness? Um, I did not know what holiness was. I, I've been a Christian for a long time, did not know what holiness really was. I mean, we all kind of know what it is, but we don't really, can't put words to it. But I did not really know what holiness was until I saw a felony committed a few years ago. Or it would have been a felony if the person who did it wasn't four years old. And then I saw the mother's reaction to that felony. And I'm not going to try and duplicate it, but it kind of scared me. (laughs) She was like, that is not acceptable. That is not okay. You are never to do that again. If you do that again, there's going to be big trouble. And when I saw that reaction, I knew that I had seen holiness. You see, when the unstoppable force of the mother's love for one child hits the immovable object of the mother's love for the other child, the result is holiness. It's a fierce anger at someone who is otherwise very loved. Now, as an aside, I think it's important for us to note that the mother's anger toward her elder son is mostly for his benefit. You don't want to be that guy. Who is that guy? That guy is the guy where people see him coming and they're going like, oh crap, it's him. Don't want to spend any time with that guy. He's such a jerk. I'm telling you, you don't want to be that guy because I was that guy. I'm gonna tell you a true story. When I was at university, my first year of university, my freshman counselor, Wei Chi Wong, came to me and she said, Rob, you are by far the most hated person in this college. There's not a single person in this college that doesn't hate your guts. They think you're the biggest jerk they've ever met. I was like, really? Why? (laughs) I'm always such a joy to be around. And she said, it's because you're negative, you're cynical, you're sarcastic. You cut people down, you make fun of them all the time. And I've seen it myself. And God help me, I did it this morning to my own wife. Still something I'm wrestling with. Fortunately, after that rebuke, I, uh, so by the way, if you see my wife after the service, give her an extra long hug because she deals daily with someone who is the biggest jerk at the university. So, but four years later, she came back. She had graduated, this freshman counselor, Weichi. She came back and she she talked to me and she said, well, everybody kind of likes you now. You've evidently improved. And what I had done was gone and rooted out all of the times when I was negative and cynical. I try very hard not to do that anymore. But I did it this morning, so I still need help. But that's an aside. We want to know that, that when the mother is angry at the elder son, she's not just angry because he hurt the younger son, she doesn't want that child to grow up being someone that nobody wants to be around. That's a lonely, horrible place to be and you don't want to be there, so the mother's love is, for that person is displayed in her anger toward that son. If, if she didn't love you, she wouldn't care. Okay, so the unstoppable force of God's love for one child meeting the immovable object of God's love for another child. What is that? How can we we make sense of the dictionary definition then? What is that saying? Well, ask any parent what they're doing when when they're dealing with two children that they love. What are you doing? You're being objective you're being apart, you're being detached. Yes, I love you, but I'm not gonna let you get away with that because you're not doing yourself any favors and you're not doing this other person a favor. Okay, so it's what God is saying when he's saying I'm detached, I'm separate, I'm apart, is he's saying I love you more than you can imagine, but you're not going to skate because I love you. That's not gonna do you any good because I'm not gonna give you gifts that allow you to hurt other people. I'm not gonna let you do things that are gonna injure others and yourself. That's not going to happen. I am holy, okay? So God is warning us because we think, you know, I mean, think about it. If you, if you were gonna go and take a job interview with your mom, you're gonna be like, What do I have to go and do my resume for? What do I have, it's my mom. God loves you more than your mom, but that's not gonna do you any good because you're dealing with people that God loves as much as he loves you. You see, we live in a valley of self, a valley of self where all we see is us every day, all day. And God says, I'm up on the holy mountain I see all the valleys. I know everybody. I love everybody just as much as I love you. And you're not going to get away. Now, in practical terms, and I wanted to end by by saying how this practically affects the way we live our lives. My wife is very good at this. It's her job, practically. If you're in my wife's ICU, you are not having a bad day You are not having a bad week. You are not having a bad month. You're having a bad year. She's in the ICU and she sees people at their absolute worst. Covered with biological fluids. Miserable, in pain, grumpy. And my wife's job is to serve those people, to love those people in that place and and to try and honor them as being made in the image of God, no matter how ugly their situation is. And she's really good at it, but I see her come back totally drained and exhausted. And you know, it's, I, I, I only get a part of that, but I see her every day coming back from that situation. It's just tough. She is amazing. And uh, so, God wants you to treat everyone, everyone, like He is, like they are, like God loves them more than your mother loves you. God loves everybody. You are to treat that person with respect. You are to honor them. You are to forgive them freely. You are to put yourself in their place, seeing their valley as well as your own. Love your neighbor as yourself is a reflection of God's holiness. You are learning to see things from the divine perspective, separate, apart, detached, objective, holy.
2: Thank you, Rob. That was so good. That was so, so good. Um, I'm thankful that what you're saying um, refers a lot to what I'm about to speak about. Uh, My name is Elsa, and uh, I'm so glad to be here and to share with you uh, a few things that God has put in my heart and that has really changed me in the last couple of years. And it is about fasting, now, maybe you're not all jumping up and down, yee, fasting, <laughs> But it is something that I've learned about in the last two years, maybe more than any other time. And uh, he's taught me that fasting actually propels you deeper and further into the things of God. And uh, my prayer really is for myself and for all of you that um, although we as a congregation have fasted, uh, but that you'll be inspired to uh, do a personal fast, to spend time with God a day a, and half a day, two days, whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do, but that you will be inspired um, to do that. Because I think there is a lot of um, breakthroughs and a lot of um, holiness that God will produce in you as as you... Uh, practice this so we do it of course because jesus has modeled it we know that he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and um, if he needed to even more so do we need to fast um, and he talks about it in the word when he talks to the people and the, the disciples he said to them when you fast and he was explaining what to do when you fast he didn't say if you fast so that shows you that uh, he, he expects it of us. And uh, it is a sacrifice, but that is also in the word, that we are to present our, our bodies as a, lic- a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. It, it's, it's our reasonable service, reasonable service. So fasting and sacrifice, they are um, um, they are connected. And it is a feeling of loss, but God likes that. And not so that he will love us more, but I believe that when we um, fast, we reposition ourselves to be more aware of God's presence, of Jesus in us. Because God cannot really get any closer. He's in us. He lives in us. He's closer than a brother. How can he get a, a, even closer than that? But the thing is, are we aware of him? Are we aware of Jesus in us? And, and fasting helps you to do that. Um, in a well-known verse, I just want to read it because it's so powerful. 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. So humility is important to God, and humility is connected to fasting. Um James 4:10 says, humble yourself in the sight of of the lord and he will lift you up remember that he will lift you up that part is like that's the part what i i I love because to be humble is really to have a very um modest view about your own importance what you have achieved and and it's it's to have a very modest view of yourself and um i've learned that humility doesn't come from fasting but it results in fasting and prayer. And um, I, I know that if we want to go deeper into the things of God and we want to go further, to go deep, we need to go low. And i have never forget what um, Derek Prince, I don't know if you know, he's a general in the faith, he's with the Lord already, but he, he, was always, he always said that he and his wife would start today, each day, with their faces before god prostrate before god and they would just wait on him and they would just love him and praise him because he said we as human beings we can't actually go any lower than the floor there there is for us no physically no other place so if we lay before the lord with our faces on the ground you can only go up from there and so let god do the lifting uh i've often asked god like i'm not very humble how, how do i get more humble um because there's so much of me <laughs> i don't know if you've asked that question how do i get more humble and but there's a key and it's not more fasting more prayer or more reading it's it's not that it's to go deeper into the soil of god's presence of his word and um Intensify your dependence on the Holy Spirit. Just having a, a brokenness before him, a repentance. Um, deeper deeper roots in God. Humbling yourself before him. And then take care of your private life. What's going on in your, in your mind. And strip yourself of all that self-confidence. And uh, just casting yourself on God's goodness and his mercy. And I think that's really the heart of fasting to humble yourselves before Almighty God, to seek his favor and his mercy. Now my experience with especially the last fast is um, before I started to be real with God and to pray from, from your heart and say, God, whatever you're going to do in this fast, I thank you already now. I give you permission to just break all pride, stubbornness, everything in me that doesn't belong. I give you permission, God, to shake and burn out anything that doesn't belong and that can be shaken so that everything that cannot be shaken will remain. And that's his kingdom. And, and that, is, that is a good way to start, to ask him to give you the grace to go through it, the courage to obey, no matter what the cost is. Now, it's interesting because a couple things you can expect when you're fasting and the last one we did a whole week. That's a long time. And so you can expect a couple things to happen so that you're not like, oh, 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 what's this? And one of the things is it's more mental than physical. <laughs> it really is. I uh, because I made a commitment before God. I said, okay, God, our pastors are saying six days, and I thank them for leading us into this. Uh, six days, but I'm going to do only water, a full water fast. And that went well for two days. And... Um, <laughs> Then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, isn't like soup broth, isn't that water? Right, that's water. And they go, why, why don't I add water? It gives me a little bit of taste. And, and so off to the store I went and I got me three packs of three different kinds of broth. And I had a cup in the morning, afternoon and evening and it, uh, was, it was tasted really good, really good. But the next morning, I woke up feeling horrible. My whole body was shaking. Um, I, I just, it was horrible. And I realized when I looked at these packs that there is 700 grams of salt in them. So uh, my, my body was trying to get rid. After two days of full water, I was trying to get rid of all that salt. And so I was, I was on the couch a um, great part of that day. But the worst was that I said, God, I broke my commitment I I told you this is what I was going to do. And I think it's really important, I think, for us when we start a fast, that from finish to end, that we do what we tell God to do. Whatever that is, whatever. You're all in different, you know, situations in your life, whether it's one day a week or whether you can do a Daniel fast. That, That doesn't really matter. It is to you know, when, what you commit yourself to do before God, just start and finish it. So I repented before God, no condemnation. That's not what our God is about at all. And I was able to finish it. Um, It's very interesting that when you read in the word of God that after the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, what did God do? He sent them into three days of fasting, no food, no water. It's, it's very interesting how God cares very much about that aspect of fasting and what it does in us. So Deuteronomy 8.3, it says, so he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So God let israel hunger so and thirst so they could feed on his word there's a spiritual part in you and me that needs food too that gets hungry it gets hungry it needs food but the food it needs is the word of god so that's actually why the word of god is called bread and someone said that when you're fasting the real you isn't really fasting the real you is your spirit so give your spirit a feast by consuming God's word, not fasting, but feasting. Now, you know, it goes a little like, okay, okay, okay. But it, it, if, if you understand the concept of that, because we're not a body that, that, that has a spirit. We are spirits who have a soul and live in a body. And our body cannot cannot feed our spirit. If you're down and out and you, and and you need you need to be uplifted your spirit can encourage you with the word of God. Your spirit can lift you. Your spirit can help you, but your body cannot help your spirit. So it it, it you understand that especially in a fast, just feast on the word of God. And there's a couple things you can expect in a fast and I've experienced it the last 2 years. Uh, have, you know, really um, changed that in, in in that area because I've practiced it more than ever before. So you can expect a hunger for God, a hunger for his word, a hunger for Jesus, his presence, but also you can expect an increase in your faith and expect power to overcome. Now that's, that's an important one because we know that Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, but Luke 4.14 says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Power, that's important to know because you and I, we we know we have an enemy. And uh, 1 John 2, 16 says we have three enemies, pride, lust, and greed. Pride of life, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. But God has given us three weapons. Those three weapons are prayer, fasting, and giving. And we know that a cord of three strands isn't easily broken. In Ecclesiastes 4, it says a cord of three strands. So prayer, fasting, and giving can defeat the enemy that we have. We have, we all have. We know that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in those three areas. Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden in those three areas. But God has given us three weapons. We can break the power of sin over our lives. So prayer defeats the enemy of pride. Fasting helps you defeat the enemy of lust by putting it down. And giving helps you defeat the enemy of greed. I want also to share with you from the word of God. I'm not going to read all the scripture verses, but I encourage you to do it when you come home. If you have time, read Isaiah 58. And I'm just going to, going to talk about a few highlights that God talks about. He talks about how to do a fast the right way. It's powerful. Read it. There's so many benefits when you're fasting God's way. And a few of them, like, it's like it says that the light of Jesus will break through. Your righteousness will go before you. Your healing will spring forth speedily. And this is all when you're fasting during or after. And God's glory will be your rear guard. And he will guide you continuously. He will strengthen your bones. We know that our cells are made in our bones. If God is strengthening your bones when you're fasting, whoa, that's a good thing. He said you are a well-watered garden when you're fasting well, the you know, Bible says we are oaks of righteousness. But when you're fasting, he calls you a well-watered garden. So flowing springs, refreshing to others, productive, a blessing to others. And darkness will become light. I think we can expect deliverance when we are, are fasting. We can really expect that God is going to set us free. Um, Even though when you're fasting, it brings you closer to your breakthrough and has many benefits. Fasting in itself doesn't have power. It doesn't produce power. All power is in God. But fasting moves you closer to God. It moves you. It doesn't impress him very much, but it moves us closer to him. He sees your heart and he sees why you want to do it. So it's a little bit like when you are turning on the faucet and you want to take a drink of water. If you don't put the cup underneath the stream of water, you're not going to get a drink at all. And fasting does that. It moves us under the flow of God's grace and his power. And with the flesh out of the way, our spirit can be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So last but not least, the early church, they fasted two times a week. And I believe they ended the fast late afternoon, maybe three, four o'clock, so they could still have a meal or with their families. That's a good practice, and we've been trying to, like my husband and I, trying to do that. And you know, it um, it is a good practice. Uh, it um, it really is is my my prayer for myself and all of us that we develop a habit of fasting, intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a day here and there as the Holy Spirit leads you, especially when you have to make uh, decisions. Uh, we know that in Moses, Elijah, Daniel, Paul, uh, Jesus, they all did that. They all fasted. So I'm convinced that when we do this, fasting, prayer, and giving, that it will lead us all into a deeper, committed, and fully surrendered life of obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I hope that that, landed in your heart in a place where you already are looking at your calendar when am I going to fast when I'm going to fast okay did you No, I, I really hope that, that that it blessed you and as much as it's blessing me as I'm speaking it I'm, I'm encouraged so thank you for listening and uh, we have uh, our next person come up Simon we're excited to hear from you
3: Good job, guys. Um, My name is Simon. I feel like Troy McClure. You may have seen me in other films, such as The Offering or The Messages. (laughs) Right? Uh, If you don't know me, my name's Simon. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Legacy Church, too. And uh, I actually wrote this message, um, like the premise of this message, in 2019. This was like before COVID, before a lot of things happened with this church, which I think is absolutely crazy. One night after hockey, me and Pastor Josh had a double header. And I came home and God dropped this in me and I wrote an email to Pastors Matt and Rach. And here we are. It's like four years later almost. And now I'm actually speaking it. Well, so the message is called Overwhelmed. So if anybody's been overwhelmed in the last couple of years, like, yeah, I mean, COVID alone overwhelmed probably most of us being shoved in our homes and not being able to leave and kind of not being able to, not being able to go out for dinner is a big thing. We don't think like it's a big thing, but like when you think back and you're like, man, I wasn't even allowed to go out for dinner. Like what is happening? Right? So anyways, um, so I want to do something here. We're going to compare two Kings. Okay? So God will mostly and often only give you what you can't handle. Right? We hear this thing all the time as God's only going to give you what you can handle. That's not true. Okay, it doesn't say that in the Bible. Nowhere does it say God's like, oh yeah, I'm only going to give you what you can handle, it's all good. No, God's like, hey, you're going to go through this. You're going to go, like, how many people in the Old Testament, David, Joseph, Job, all of these people were completely overwhelmed over and over and over again. Why does God do this? So that we rely on him. Because if we didn't go through things that overwhelmed us, would we need him? Would we rely on him? Would we reach out to him? Would we pray? Would we do all of these things? Most likely not. And we're going to see in this comparison that probably not. Okay? So first, let's look at David. Okay? So David comes on the scene in 1 Samuel 16. He's out in the field. Right? He's like a nobody. Samuel comes to anoint him. And his dad doesn't even think to get him. He's like, oh, you want the little runt who's out in the field? Who was probably like maybe eight years old? And he's like, yeah, yeah, go get him. Because all of these guys aren't who I'm here for. So he brings him out. He gets anointed. Okay. Next, we see David now, still probably at a pretty young age, goes to King Saul. Because Saul, God is done with Saul. And he's like, okay, I'm done with you. He actually sends a tormenting spirit to Saul, which is a completely different message. And uh, David goes and soothes him, right? So, okay, so that's the next sort of thing. Next thing that happens is Goliath, right? David gets sent to his brothers who are in the army, who are camped out, and Goliath is taunting these people, saying like, basically, you guys are a joke. Send somebody out here to fight me. And David shows up, who's, again, a child. And it's basically like, who is this clown who thinks he has the right to say this about my God? Right? And he's like, I'll fight him. What's the big deal? (laughs) Right? So, like, if I, you know, an actual timeline, I don't really know. But what we do know is that he was too young to be in the army, and that's why he was bringing him food. Right? So, he kills this giant, right? So after he kills the giant, Saul's like, all right, you're mine now. You're not going anywhere. I need you here because obviously God is with you. So let's, let's keep you here. So he, again, starts playing the harp for him and soothes him. And then Saul loses it, throws a spear at him. David takes off. So now David is on the run. He's living in caves and wilderness, and he is basically just, it's him and God right? It's him and God, and he's constantly reaching out to him and asking him, like, what do I do? How do I get through this? What's going on? You know, very humble and and everything. Uh, so let me just see where I am here in my notes here. Uh, okay, so, uh, so again, so David is out. He in these multiple wars, like just this guy, this is what he does. And so finally he gets to a point where Saul's like, okay, you can now marry one of my daughters. And David's like, no, I don't think I want to do that. And he's like, because he's trying to get him to go back into battle and fight people. And then so he finally agrees, he marries one of his daughters. Every time he sends him out to fight, he wins. Every time. God is with this guy. He is constantly with him, no matter what David's going through, because of how David is. And this is building David's character into who David is, into who we know David is today, right? Right? So, um, again, he is now, um, so after that, uh, Saul tries to throw another spear at him. He runs again. He So then he's decades on the run. He's running, and then he becomes the king uh, eventually, and So once he becomes king, obviously Saul has gone at this point, and then now we're in David's sort of reign. And even when um, David becomes king, he is still a sinner, like me and you. He ends up sleeping with another man's wife, and after that happens, he kills that man's, that woman's husband because he's like, oh crap, I messed up, and now I need this girl to be my wife, right? So Again, God forgives him. God, He's constantly reaching after God. Everything, right? So, okay. So that's David, okay? There is so much more. I'm trying to give you a glimpse of David in terms of like what he went through because that shows us like how he has built his character no matter what he went through. He went and he relied on God, okay? So now let's look at Solomon. and sorry. So, All of us, mostly in here, have read our Bible, and we understand we've probably read about King David and we've read about King Solomon. So when you're thinking about it, you're like, okay, so King David is the man after God's own heart, and King Solomon is known as the wisest, richest king that ever lived. So who was more like, hey, I'd like to be like King Solomon, Right? He seems like the more successful, like, king. You're like, man, this guy had more money than, like, God himself, basically. So, and now, so let's, let's look at Solomon. Okay? So Solomon comes on, this, on the scene. He's about 15 years old. Okay? When he gets, like, the, what I could find is he's roughly about 15 years old when he gets to become king. Which is crazy. You know, like a 15-year-old, you become king? Like that alone is going to mess with you, right? David at this point was out killing giants still, right? So, so he's young. He becomes... And, and another cool thing is actually... So Solomon's name means peace. Okay, so after David had slept with this man's wife, the first child had died. And Solomon was then born with this same wife... And his name means peace because he was actually the peace offering between David and God for his sin, right? Because David's constantly making things right with him, okay? So then, uh, so he becomes king. Solomon, like, and I don't, again, like, the Bible's not in super chronological order when you're reading it. But one of the first things that it says that Solomon does when he becomes king is he actually marries an Egyptian's daughter, the egyptian ruler pharaoh he marries his daughter which is kind of a no no right we're supposed to they're supposed to stay within the within their the israelites so that those type of women wouldn't take him and lead him to other different things okay so that's what he does uh, his reign unlike david's is a time of peace and abundance so david was a lot of war and fighting and Solomon's time was actually known as the Peace and Abundance. One King, uh, 425. Okay, so then Solomon makes an alliance. Well, sorry. Uh, okay, so then God appears to Solomon in a dream and tells him he can have anything he wants. Sounds amazing, right? So Solomon goes, "I want wisdom so that I can lead your people to the best of my ability." And God is like, "That is a great answer. Good job." Right? And we think, okay, Solomon, this guy, he's got this. Like, right? He answered the best thing. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for power. Nothing for himself. He asked to lead his people properly. And so God says, okay, because you asked for that, I'm going to give you all this wealth and everything else. And Solomon's like, okay. So, (laughs) so, um, okay. So, um, So then Solomon, like in his rule and reign, obviously because of the wisdom that he was given, he wrote actually 300 of the, 3,000 Proverbs that are in Proverbs and 1,005 of the songs that are in Song of Songs in the Bible, okay? But then Solomon does something crazy. He actually creates forced labor. Hmm, weird. I thought slavery was done. He decided to reestablish it. So the Hebrew word is mass, which is the same word that is used to describe the Israelites' enslavement to the Egyptians, which is in Exodus 1.11. Okay, so the next sort of thing Solomon does is he builds God's temple. And it takes him seven years to build God's temple. Okay, but then in the next verse, it shows that Solomon took 13 years to build his own temple. So you're like, okay, so was there a pause because he was building God's temple or did he build his temple bigger and greater than God's temple, right? Oof, I don't know where, I don't like where this is going. Jeez. So I don't know how we're supposed to state that statement. Like, who knows? So however, we keep reading, God comes and is in the temple He fills the temple just like he did uh, back with Moses. So we think everything's all hunky-dory. He filled the temple. God's still with him. We're like, okay, let's keep going. So God now appears to Solomon a second time. So this time, however, it's a warning. And he's saying that he needs to wholeheartedly align with God or he is basically going to crumble the temple that he just built. Right? So... After this warning, Solomon keeps kind of doing his own Solomon thing. So he is continuing to build slave labor, okay? He he builds a fleet of ships that regularly bring him enormous amounts of gold. So in the... Sorry, I didn't write down the actual verse, but the first one talks about about 16 tons of gold that he brings in. And then he gets a visit from Queen Queen Sheba, who she comes and admires all of his stuff and brings him a whole bunch of other material stuff that he probably doesn't need because he's got so much at this point. Then we see again that these fleets per year start bringing in 25 tons of gold per year, right? Then Solomon builds a huge force of chariots, And Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and Sicilicia. I don't, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, but that's going to be important because we're going to look at this in a second. And then Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Okay? Crazy. So at this point, I don't know if we're supposed to be impressed with this guy or if we're supposed to be suspicious of this guy because like... It seems pretty sus what this guy's got going on. Like, I don't even know anymore. Okay? So, which is really interesting. So now, uh, so in Deuteronomy, okay, Moses is speaking to the people and he's telling them and he understands that because God knows that eventually these people are going to ask for a king. So this is what uh, Moses says. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, wait a second. That's not the right verse. Uh, Okay, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. He even did the horse thing. I don't know what's up with this guy. So since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. This guy did everything. Outside of him being an Israelite, I think he checked everything off of Moses' box. He was like, what else can I do that, like, I'm like, go get me the horses. Like, (laughs) it was almost like he was trying. Like, it just blows my mind. And again, like, whenever I had thought of King Solomon, until I actually started digging into this, I was like, man, King Solomon, like, what a dude. Like, he wrote all these songs. He's so smart. He's got all this stuff. But no. No. He, he doesn't, and you know, and so, and the last thing, um, right? So, and it states in here what, what Moses says, was don't uh, marry and have many wives. And the many wives that he did marry were from all of the other tribes around Israelite, and they eventually turned his heart away from God, right? So, again, the point is, is David character, through all of the hardship that he went through, built this character and relied on God constantly. Solomon, who basically after his one sort of pinnacle moment, and it's not, but the, the kind of pinnacle moment where he's like, I want to be able to lead these people the best I can, so please give me the wisdom, it almost seems to be like his downfall from that point. So it was like, was that maybe not from, it was more of like a uh, like a skin level, deepness, a skin level, hey God, I wanna, like, he was just trying to impress God or did he have it inside of him? I don't know, like it's it's really, right? So anyways, um, so now if we bring it into sort of modern day Christianity, um, I think we think as Christians that, you know, God is always gonna give us everything that we desire. And it's not that he doesn't want to, Um, but we can see that hardship makes amazing men and women of God, whereas what we think we want could possibly take us out. So does that mean that God doesn't want to give us anything and we need to be miserable and work at jobs we hate and never buy new clothes and only eat bread and give all our money away? No. No right? He wants us to like live and be uh, with him. And so there's like this tricky line in in, in, uh, Christianity where we're supposed to crucify all these things. But why would God say things like, he will give you the desires of your heart and please protect your heart because it is the spring of life in you. If what he wanted was to kill your dreams and desires, right? No, he wants to work with you. He wants you to have those things. He wants you to be able to accomplish them. So, but we want to build them with him and build things that last forever, like David's kingdom, and build a partnership with God so that even your predecessors can't destroy what you've built. Because even at the end of Solomon's rule, he said, even though you haven't listened to me and you've turned away from me, I'm not going to destroy your kingdom because of your father, right? So... Um, And then we see in the New Testament, James uh, 1, 2, and same sort of thing that uh, Elsa was saying is like when we look at the wording, right, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet your trials of various kinds, you will know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When, right? Not if, when, Um, And let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lack nothing. Right? So James is telling us here that we are going to have trials and God will often give you more than you can handle. Um, But in this, if we turn to God and we work with God, he will build our character. So... Um, And as we can see from the comparison of David and Solomon, we can't really know the depth of our character until we have been under pressure. And once we've gone under that pressure, we know where we stand with God. Are Are we staying with him? Are we walking with him? Are we relying on him? Or are we turning again? So David didn't lack because he had God's heart and Solomon only lacked God's heart. Oof. God put... Told me that yesterday, and I was just like, what a punch to the gut, man. So, uh, so we really do, we got to grasp this understanding that, bless, that the real blessing is an eternity with God and not material things here on earth. The real blessing, again, is the eternity of God and forgiveness of our sins, and God wipes the slate clean with Christ, who has done what we needed to do on the cross so that we could live with Him in eternity. Amen. So, yes. Love you guys. Sherry's next.
0: Hey guys, if you have not had the chance to meet me yet, my name is Sherry. And I'm just so uh, overwhelmed to hear the different voices in this church and how God can speak. A line through everything that just beautifully weaves it together. Um, thank you so much, Rob and Elsa and Simon, for sharing what God's been saying to you, and it's very applicable on all levels. Um, It's—I think—it's really easy when you see people going through their hardships and their trials, or their good times, to judge from your perspective whether they are close to God's heart or not. And something that God has been speaking to me recently is that when God's speaking to me, he's speaking to me about me first. <laughs> me first, because I have filters that uh, cloud any judgments that I'm making about other people. And uh, like the fact that you spoke in front of me, I had no idea what you're saying. That's really helpful and timely for what I'm gonna talk about. So. My, my family has a uh, practice of reading Proverbs, two Proverbs, after dinner every night. And, uh, you know, it's mayhem sometimes. We have, like, three kids, nine, seven, and two. And trying to do this is crazy sometimes, but we do it. And um, right before the holidays, we touched on this Proverb. And we read it in the NLT, for, the New Living Translation, first. But then my husband grabbed it in the message, and it said this. I said, listening to gossip is like eating cheap candy. Do you want junk like that in your belly? And I was like, why, yes, I do. (laughs) I really love candy. Um, And I was telling my kids, because we try to keep it practical so that they can actually have some semblance of an idea that the word of God actually means something in their lives. And I said, well, this past Halloween, one of my children had their Halloween candy confiscated for their attitude. And one night I was like, it's sitting there looking at me. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to have it. I'm going to eat it. And I just unwrapped one. Mm, it was so good. Just kept going and going and going. And while I was going, each wrapper unwrapping, I was like, oh, I should probably stop. But it's really good. And then when I stopped, though, that was the moment when I was like, oh that is disgusting. Like, (laughs) I was just like a glutton and it's disgusting. I feel horrible. And like, like I wanted to hide all the wrappers in the bottom of the garbage so like nobody knew that I did it. It was horrible. Um, But, you know, for me in that moment, like why did I do that? You know, I really wanted it. it. Tastes great for a minute. It was awesome. But the long lasting effects, not so great. So, Proverbs is comparing gossip to your Halloween candy stash. It's like, you know, it's horrible, it's junky, you feel like garbage after you do it, um, but you're getting something from it, or you wouldn't, or you wouldn't do it in the first place. So the question that kind of comes to my mind is: why, how is gossip serving me? Because it's doing something for me that I feel a need for. And every toxic and destructive habit that we have always gives us something and it's a quick fix to something that's like a real actual deep need down inside of us and you know to be real i i notice myself in some relationships i have the power to say no to gossip i'd be like ah no i don't need to hear that that's not like my business not my story i like that's not going to help me. But then I was noticing that in other relationships I have, I like totally gossip. I'm like listening and I'm starting to feel powerful. They, they trust me to share this with me or I've got information that they need to know. So now maybe I'll be more secure in this relationship. I'll know that they actually care about me because we're sharing this insider information together. And that, I mean, when you say it out loud, it sounds disgusting because it is. But I, I'm, hopefully I'm not the only one that can find themselves in this position. I'm here like, hello guys, here I am. But um, it's really, I'm looking for acceptance in a relationship and I'm looking for security in a relationship that this information and power, I feel like it's giving me in the moment. So, but the reality is actually found in God's word. And it's funny because I was working on this little idea of thinking about this. And then I stumbled on Psalm 15. And this is what it says. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right. Speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such people will stand firm forever. It says it right there that, my true security in my place in god's family is actually by not gossiping it actually tells me the honor the opposite of when i speak sincerely from my heart truth and i honor other people and i go in front of god that actually gives me that security that i'm looking for and so when i'm actually standing in front of god with all my reasons about why i should gossip Uh, I'm actually seen for what I really am. There's no hiding in front of God when I stand before him on his holy mountain, like uh, Rob talked about, Um, because there is no real security in relationship with God or others when I trade gossip for that false sense of security. What I'm actually doing is I'm destroying relationships when I do that, because if I'm willing to gossip about others to someone, they're listening which means that that person is probably listening to gossip about me. It, it just, it goes both ways. So I'm actually trading integrity for like a moment of feeling like I'm accepted. And I'm sacrificing that very thing that I'm looking for deep inside. So what the psalm that I just read is teaching us is that honor Honesty and humility bring us a place in the presence of God. And I can't believe that, Elsa, you said the cord of three strands is not easily broken because what God was showing me is that there are those three things, the honor, the honesty, and the humility, which equals presence and unity. But there's also an evil side to that. And the the evil three Three strands that cannot be broken is judgment, gossip, and pride. And so, what I learned about judgment and gossip is that they're very much intertwined. So, um, one of the versions in this psalm that talks about gossip explains gossip as being a talebearer, and a talebearer in the original language that it was written in is someone who has taken facts that they have observed, and they've attached a judgment on it. So you have become the judge of that situation or that person, and then you proceed to go tell everyone about your judgment on the situation. And what Rob said is very true, that God sits high above us all, and he knows this person's going through this, and it looks really messy right now, and it's really ugly, but he sees the end. And he knows where they're headed. He knows their trajectory, which I don't know. And that he also might know that this person looks really good right now, but in their hearts, they're actually straying far, far from God. And so we only see the facts observable, but he sees the spirit and the direction. And it was so convicting to me that... I have taken God's place in judging other people instead of taking the opportunity which he gives me through Jesus of going to God. And the picture I had was from um, a verse in the Bible where it says that he reaches down and picks us up out of the miry clay and lifts us out. Because when we're all covered with mud, all we see is the mud. We don't even see the person. So what if I take the opportunity... And I let God lift me out of the mud where I can only see what's right in front of me and all the mud covering everybody else and all the garbage and the dirt. And I take my place with him in heavenly places, which is what is actually what a child of God gets to live in, which is from his perspective. I get the opportunity to get out of the mud, go up and sit with him and see how he sees the person that I have been judging and also judging myself because with whatever judgment I'm using on others, I am judged myself. So I really need to come in humility before God first and say, God, I'm judging. (laughs) I'm judging this person and I feel that judgment right back at me. I am controlling. (laughs) I am a gossip. I am this, I am that. And I actually get to get washed and clean. And I get to hear now what God is saying about someone else. This is how I see my child. Anybody can see the dirt. Anybody can see the mud. But we are called as the church to be able to have the perspective of Jesus on other people. And so now I get to actually step into the gift of prophecy where I can see God's word for somebody right now that sees the trajectory, sees what they can be, and start calling that out. Start praying that over them because maybe my emotions aren't lined up yet with what I'm seeing from Christ. So I actually take what Jesus said to bless my enemies, do good to the ones that feel like an enemy to me. I get to start speaking God's will and God's best over their life, which then in turn gives me the sincere heart to go to them if they are hurting me personally and speak to them about it. But to just rashly go and throw dirt that I'm seeing, it's the improper order. It's not the loving way because that's not what God does to me. That's not how he treats me and that's not how Jesus came. He came and he offered grace that we are already judged in our sin. That's the state that we are in without Christ. That's the bottom line. So grace is the extension of the hand to lift up and we get to do that for each other. Lynn, if you wanna come, you can, thanks. Um, We get to trade pride for humility We get to trade judgment for honoring other people. And we get to trade gossip for sincere, loving truth of the people around us, that we speak when necessary. We speak with kindness and with gentleness when something does need to be addressed, but we allow God to judge us first. And, you know, I don't know, there are four very powerful messages that were spoken today and I'm sure that we can all find ourselves somewhere in one of those mixes pursuing something that is not God's best for us whether it's gossip or judgment or pride or self-importance it, it you know it doesn't really matter which one of those toxic habits we're living in we don't have to anymore and so I just want to pray with you guys before we end today because we wanna be building our lives on things that last forever, like Simon spoke about. I don't want our relationships in this church family to crumble and be divided because of the way we're talking about each other or thinking about each other in our hearts. Um, This is supposed to be the most uplifting place the most beautifully messy place on the planet where we're actually real, we're actually rubbing shoulders with each other, causing pain, but finding healing through that pain. And so Jesus, we come to you right now. And Jesus, I stand and I surrender everything that I am to you, every judgment, every bit of information that I feel like I have over other people, my expectations for what things need to look like in my life, in others' lives, in the church, in the world, God, I bow to you, God, and I stand in the authority that you have given me, Jesus. And I come over the atmosphere of this church God and we take your hand collectively anyone that wants to reach up and God we ask you to pull us out of the mud and into heavenly places in your courts of heaven Father God we are not children of mud we are the sons and daughters of the living God and we sit down next to you and we look to you We thank you for washing us, Jesus. And whatever it is that you are being washed of, Jesus wants to give you something else instead, a new perspective, new vision, new security in him, your identity and who he he has made you to be. And whatever that looks like, whether it's a word or a picture or a feeling, it doesn't matter. You hold that thing. God, we want to live this life in the unity that you've actually given to us. It's a reality, and we choose to step inside of that, Lord. I bless your people today in their spirits, like Elsa was talking about, deep inside of them, that their spirits will wake up in the name of Jesus. Come to life that we would become people of encouragement and sincere truth, God. We love you, Jesus. We ask you to forgive us for the ways that we have been blind and unaware of what we've been doing and for the ways that we've been fully aware of what we've been doing. God, we throw out the candy. God, and we take real life inside of us. Wash us, I pray, Lord, and work on us by your Holy Spirit gently and deeply through this week. God, don't let this end here, I pray. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on our website at lgcy.church.